Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Of course, during Easter season, we focus on the resurrection and it's the, role, well, the place it holds in the whole scheme of salvation history. And I've focused on this, the facticity and the historicity of the resurrection because St. Paul makes it clear that without their, an actual bodily resurrection of Jesus, uh, we aren't entitled to our faith. And we're living in a period of time in which people like to talk about faith in a very undifferentiated way. Um, it used to be that if you were the, uh, the king or queen of England, you would be considered to be the defender of the faith. Well, um, Prince Charles said that he wanted it to be, he wanted, when he became king, if he became king, he wanted to be called the defender of faith, moving away from a very objective thing, the faith, to faith. That is, whatever you guys have faith in, you know. Um, Christianity makes very specific claims about what Jesus accomplished, and it was a bodily resurrection, not just uh, a sweet hope of immortality. I want to go over, though, more than just the fact of the resurrection, because, of course, it has a function in our lives as well. Most of us fear death to some degree, might fear the pain of death, might fear loss of functioning, loss of loved ones, um, the utter isolation um, and aloneness of the process of dying, the unknown, fear of the unknown, fear of non-being or non-existence or annihilation, fear of judgment. Uh, it could be many, many things. People fear death in a variety of different ways. And yet, the resurrection of Jesus is meant to shatter that fear. Now, let me, let me just read from the scriptures on this. It's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And the writer says, Since the children share in blood and flesh, he likewise, it is Jesus, likewise shared in them, basically saying Jesus shared our human nature, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and free those who through fear of death had been subject to slavery all of their lives. The devil holds us in fear. It's a bondage. We, are, we fear death. And in many ways, if we fear death, we fear to live as freely as we should. Jesus came to break uh, that fear. And, you know, we can be—a lot of us have had paralyzing anxiety um, when we come up against the prospect of our own— uh, mortality. And the scriptures recognize this fear. I, I always said the Bible is a very practical book. It really recognizes uh, the, our human experience. Uh, and people are often tormented by it. Jesus acknowledges that, uh, and, and the writer to the Hebrews acknowledges that, yes, people are fearful. Um, he came to destroy that fear because he came to destroy the work of the devil who has held us in fear. And our society, of course, has its own way of trying to overcome the devastating fear of death. And they propose all kinds of false solutions uh, to the problem of death. I just read a story about one fellow, wealthy fellow, who, when he died, said he didn't want any mourning at all. He wanted a memorial palooza, basically wanted a festival of, of music and song. He wanted to make his funeral a festival, thereby denying 
the tragic dimension of death. And, of course, we're often told that um, uh, we should master death by, what, denial or drugs or assisted suicide or some sort of meditations. Humans are inventive, and we share our tips on how to deal with death, right? We construct many devices to shelter us from the threat of ultimate termination. There's a a brilliant book by uh, sociologist Ernst Becker called The Denial of Death, where he argues that human civilization is ultimately an elaborate symbolic defense mechanism against the knowledge of our own mortality. And that, in turn, you know, acts as the emotional and intellectual response to our basic survival mechanism. And he says basically two things in the world. you got the physical world of objects, and you have your inner symbolic world of human meaning. And uh, your understanding of life, your meaning about the purpose of life, runs headlong into the physical world of objects, the object of your body, which is going to die. And he says we spend our lives creating illusions, uh, how we can avoid immortality. We hide behind grand heroic schemes that uh, make us believe that we can transcend death. Becker includes religion in this, this whole thing. And of course, if there had not been a historical resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, a Becker might have a point. But the resurrection of Jesus is, in fact, the answer to the common expression, dead men stay dead. Because that is a very certain fact of life for most of us, right? I mean, you, you, you go everywhere you go, there are cemeteries. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus, though, is that one moment in human history where he who had been determined to be dead, finally dead, came back to fullness of life, didn't just resuscitate, but came back to fullness of life. And so Christ comes to shatter that fear of death, not by creating illusions about heaven or illusions about heroism, but by demonstrating in space and in time through his very body that there is someone, at least one person, who is victor over death. Now, of course, it doesn't automatically mean that all of our apprehensions or fears, uh, anxieties about death are going to be abolished like taking a magic pill. But uh, St. Paul writes in First Thessalonians 4, verse 13, he says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, about those who have died, or he uses the, the euphemism, those who have fallen asleep. Uh, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve like the rest who have no hope. So he wants us aware of the resurrection of Jesus, so that we can remember that those who have fallen asleep in Christ are coming back with Christ at the end of history. And we should not grieve like the rest of the world that has no hope. This is critical, because if you notice, the passage here isn't saying we don't grieve. It says we just, we grieve differently. We grieve differently than those who have no hope. And why is that? Because we know what awaits us in eternity. Because we know what awaits us in eternity, we can grieve differently. Jesus makes the difference. His resurrection demonstrates it's the most, the most certain 
of human observations, dead men stay dead, has failed to be true in at least one incident. And though the world dismisses the triumph of the cross, right, we hold it up, and we beckon people to look to that cross to find eternal life. And it's amazing how through the uh, New Testament, how the, word, how the concept of hope or believing on that promise, you know, hoping and trusting in God to fulfill his promises, how much that comes up. And it comes up a little bit differently in each portion of the New Testament. So, for instance, in the Synoptic Gospels, the word hope itself doesn't appear in the Synoptic Gospels. But Christ's followers are buoyed along by their eager and earnest expectation that the kingdom of God is at hand. So that is their hope, the kingdom. It's ready, it's on the horizon. Uh, In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about the Spirit who will come as another, one of the same kind, as another advocate, another counselor. And uh, what he's promising there is that we're going to enter into a deeper intimacy with the Father that the Son already possesses. And he's, only, he's going to send the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to bring about this deeper intimacy between us and the Father. So we live in hope of the giving of the Spirit. The apostles lived in hope of the Spirit coming in Pentecost. In St. Paul, well, that's where the word hope does show up a lot. It, it, his whole vision of the Christian life focuses uh, in hope, not only in the epistles to the Thessalonians, but throughout 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, The resurrection is the object of our hope. Uh, That is held out for us as the state of glory which we're going to reach. And Christ is our hope. Yes, the indwelling Christ is our hope. The indwelling Spirit is that guarantee of the future. And... um, so St. Paul puts hope right up there with faith and charity, you know, and uh, you find that triad of faith, hope, and charity repeated a number of times in, in St. Paul's letters. And he also, um, again, points out in Ephesians chapter 4 that this is what leads to maturity, uh, a mature hope in the age to come. By the way, the book of Revelation 2, which uh, is written to help buoy Christians uh, through persecution. doesn't use the word hope explicitly, but it holds out. It holds out the coming of Jesus as our hope. So, you know, the New Testament, whether you're quoting Hebrews 2 or 1 Thessalonians 4 or many of the passages on hope, it doesn't necessarily mean we'll be totally free of negative emotions surrounding death, but it does mean that we will grieve differently. We will estimate our future differently. Uh, In in fact, the way to put this is compare. One of the ways that we grieve differently or we regard death differently is to compare this world with the age to come. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, in my opinion, whatever we have to go through now on this earth is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future that God has planned for us in Christ. Or a more, uh, less of a paraphrase, St. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So this, again, is held out for us as a, a spiritual discipline. I say it's the discipline of spiritual comparison. 
We awaken our spiritual imagination. We awaken the moral life within us by comparing the glory that is going to be revealed to us and in us with this present veil of tears. And the scripture makes it clear that we don't yet know what that final state will be. Uh, Paul writes, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And St. John writes similarly, he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. So, dear friends, we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purifies themselves just as he is pure. So there it is, the discipline of our attention, fastening in it on Jesus, comparing the age to come with this present veil of tears. In Revelation 21, we read, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And the scripture tells us, meditate on these things. Chew them over. Let them replace the anxiety or fear. Because we know what is to come. And we know what is to come because of what has already been accomplished in the past through the resurrection And that resurrection is a present reality for us.